Hi everyone. Welcome to today's insight session on topical issues in group insurance. This is a joint hosting by the Life Insurance and Wealth Management Practice Committee and the Superannuation Practice Committee. So hopefully we'll see both sides of the fence and hopefully a bit of debate. It's actually the first of two panels featuring practitioners in group insurance. Most of us actuaries. Today, we have myself, Richard Land, and Jeff Humphreys, who are both consulting actuaries advising major funds on insurance issues in group insurance. I'll be talking about recent and emerging issues and setting the scene. Jeff will be talking about sustainable insurance benefit design and some recent experience that he's had. Claire Machen is a lawyer at Herbert Smith Freehills, and she'll be talking about new definitions, terms and conditions, and legal challenges and interpretations. And we're hoping for some time at the end for questions and answers. The next panel is on Monday, and speakers there will be Andrew Gill, an actuary and managing director of Pacific Life Re, talking about the challenges for group insurance in the reinsurance market. We'll have Greg Staunton on Monday, the head of product and pricing at QInsure, talking about them establishing their new life company. And on Monday we'll also have Daniel Stone, Senior Actuary at TEL, talking about data analytics. So just covering recent and emergent issues real reasonably quickly. This slide's entitled The Recent Past, but in many ways it seems to me like ancient history. The industries moved at such pace. So a number of years ago, we had a blowout in disability claims costs, arising from generous disability definitions, easy eligibility and opt-ups, increased member awareness, and increased community acceptance of mental illness and claims for those conditions. We saw premium increases towards 100%, not being uncommon, shorter premium rate guarantees, and a lack of insurer and reinsurer appetite. But I've said maybe this is ancient history, because certainly in some recent tenders, there have been some hungry insurers. And the response, as many of us know, has been more restrictive terms, including disability definitions and increased APRA oversight. Just touching on the response briefly. We have seen new, stricter disability definitions and, and <coughs> alternative product designs. And Claire Machen will touch on a number of these issues when she speaks later on. We've seen tighter eligibility for cover, including longer at-work periods on joining, and also tougher conditions to opt up cover or when joining outside the normal eligibility condition uh, periods. And those have included things like pre-existing condition exclusions. There's been an increase in rehabilitation activity, and that's been facilitated by the definitions and the benefit designs. But there's certainly more scope for integration with workers' compensation rehabilitation, employee, employer return to work programs, as, long as, as well as those offered by funds and insurers. I've put a couple of logos there of some funds which have recently um, been leading the charge 
on the new definitions and the new benefit designs. I won't dwell too long on those. So Australian Super has shifted the emphasis for its disability from total and permanent disablement to income protection in its product design. And just as one example, to obtain a total disability under income protection in Australian Super, you have to be totally unable to perform all income producing duties of your usual occupation. Whereas traditionally in the past, it's been unable to perform one or more duties. Sunsuper has recently launched TPD Assist, where there's no waiting period for TPD to encourage early notification and rehabilitation, but where there's a potential to make six total and permanent disablement instalment payments over a five-year period, and those being subject to an annual assessment of TPD. Jeff's been closely involved, and he can certainly touch on that uh, in more detail than I can. So let's look at the outcomes from the response. And I don't think that needs any further explanation. Another outcome, arguably, is increased media focus in the mainstream media of the insurance and superannuation industry and not necessarily for the better. I've listed a couple of headlines which appeared in Fairfax Media, so devils in the detail in super life insurance, alluding to some of the terms and conditions. Another one, Rest Industry Super withheld paraplegic women's disability insurance, again relates to terms and conditions. So that particular case was about a woman who finished working at McDonald's in 2010 and in 2012 suffered a psychotic episode, walked off a balcony and became a paraplegic. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that her claim for TPD was declined. And the reasons for those was because it occurred more than 72 days after ceasing employment and also because her account balance was less than $3,000. And both those, per the insurance policy and all disclosure documents, were reasons for insurance cover ceasing. However, the issue there, as reported by the Sydney Morning Herald, was that the TPD insurance still appeared on her annual statement and premiums were still being deducted from <coughs> her account. So I guess that relates to the complexities of administration and the importance of administration to align with definitions uh, and policies. And just to conclude, reading through the article, words such as fine print and rip off certainly appear. Another outcome of the crisis, and again, we'll hear more about this on Monday. QPOT Super launches industry first insurance company. Uh, Queensland's largest superannuation fund, etc., has established a wholly owned insurance company, QInsure. On Monday, we'll have Greg Staunton from QInsure come along and tell us that the first option wasn't to have was was to have external insurance and not to establish um, its own insurance company. 
And he'll also talk about the interesting uh, perspective of a superannuation fund with an investment in an insurer needing to generate a return on capital, just like any other investment, and also as a service provider. I might just pause and go through some observations from a Four Corners report, which aired on the 1st of August. It was about police officers suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and experiencing difficulty in pursuing insurance claims. And there was emphasis on the impacts of surveillance. The guy down the bottom left of the slide is Brendan Bullock, who was a police officer and experienced a number of unfortunate observations and traumatic events during his career as a police officer. And that culminated in 2011, when he attended a crime scene where a man had stabbed his wife and, in his words, hacked her to pieces. He went on leave and never returned and spent the next number of years pursuing a TPD claim. So I took a lot of interest in this, obviously working in the area, and my first observation was, gee, I'm glad I'm an actuary and not a police officer. I'm glad I deal with corrupt spreadsheets in an <laughs> air-conditioned office, not corrupt criminals uh, on a crime scene. But then also on a personal note, I thought, this is not a great outcome for anyone. Certainly seeing what Brandon Bullock went through, it's a horrific outcome for him. It's not a great outcome for the insurance industry, the, fun the superannuation industry, or really a for society. Then further into the program, it's said that it's estimated that one in five serving police officers have or at risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder. And then some observation there from an actuary's perspective, I thought, jeepers, think of the pricing impact of this and how sustainable is that? And then I thought, what's the benefit involved? It's a lump sum TPD product design covering conditions that are really difficult to objectively verify. So... I'm kind of thinking that with all those things in the mix, is it any, any wonder we're getting an outcome like we got, which is really not good for anyone? And the final observation was that Brendan's father said, being out of the police force has left a gaping hole and he misses it. So I know this is about the police force and there are specific issues there, but it probably can be extrapolated to the rest of our industry. And I feel that superannuation and insurers are gradually assuming more of a role of social responsibility and not just for financial assistance in hardship, but there is the issue of rehabilitation and return to work. And I think certainly there's been a number of steps in that direction, but I think we've got a long way to go. So to ask the obvious question, is the crisis over? Well, we've talked about progress in benefit design. 
rehabilitation and support. We've seen the return to profitability of the group insurance life, ins life insurers. We're seeing some developments in the intersection of professionals. So I think there's some cooperation with financial uh, input, typically people like actuaries, on the pricing and reserving side, with the legal profession, on the definitions and the sustainability side, but also in the medical and caring professions where we're seeing more involvement to try and return to work and get a good outcome for everyone. And having said, said that, I think there needs to be a significant investment in resources, and I just think the scale of that could be enormous. At the recent Group Insurance Summit, Richard Weatherhead from Australian Super said that only 15% of high-risk income protection claims were referred to rehabilitation in Australian super. And that was a great improvement, and that was an area that they're really focusing on. And on average, the time from notification to the referral to rehabilitation had improved to be now only 10 months. So what they are aiming for, according to Richard, is to increase the percentage of high-risk IP claims referred to rehab from the 15% to 40%. So maybe just think about the impact on resourcing and the support needed to make that great big step. And if that's to be repeated throughout the industry, it certainly bears thinking about. So is the crisis over? Well, in my opinion, they're, they're full of opportunities for the crisis to re-emerge. There's opportunities like new entrants and re-entrants potentially relearning some old lessons. There's opportunities in relation to under-resourcing issues for claims management. There's opportunities for the cycle to turn again in terms of pricing. And there's a potential economic recession maybe on the horizon. Finally, there's legal interpretation of these new definitions. Just touching on a couple of other relevant points. Market capacity. Well, we've seen the improved insurer profitability and we do have some additional reinsurance capacity both locally and from overseas reinsurers. And I've said insurer appetite returning, but as I alluded to earlier in the presentation, perhaps it's returned. These are just some raw figures for the reinsurers. They're five <coughs> of the seven reinsurers in Australia, and you can see that the profit results aren't great in the APRA stats. Now, many would argue that there are underlying issues there, and underlying profit is better. Now finally, APRA has been a central player and just probably to make a few observations there, obviously APRA is regulating the super funds and also the life insurers and sometimes in the past there's been commercial tensions there. So APRA certainly had a strong emphasis on sustainability. It conducted its thematic review of insurance in super 
uh, over a year ago now and has been recently visiting funds to talk about how things have been going along. And these are some of the questions that APRAs have been asking. Benefit design. Have there been changes to eligibility conditions and definitions of disability? Is insurance cover focused on meeting members' needs based on member demographics? And this point keeps coming up. Alignment of interests in benefit design between insurer, reinsurer and trustee. In terms of pricing, in order to align those interests, there needs to be establishment of confidence in the insurer pricing so that the trustees can still fulfil their duties. Experienced profit sharing has been raised. And of course, a focus on meeting the data requirements of SPS 250, which became compulsory and transition relief expiring uh, this 1 July. Finally, there's been a focus on claims management. Um, I'll now hand over to Jeff. He'll talk about sustainable insurance benefit design. And I hope you find it interesting from the superannuation side and some of the interesting work that Jeff's been doing recently. Thank you, Richard. And a special thank you to Richard for um, organising us all. And, and in fact, putting on two sessions with uh, six different perspectives, which I think is very, very positive for the profession. So I'm talking about sustainable insurance benefit design. So the first thing I wanted to do was just to find sustainable, able to be supported. It's a very simple concept. Of course, in our, in our industry, there's a lot of things that need to be sustainable for it to work. And we're not talking about these. Claims management, relationships, structures, etc. We're, we're focused here on, on designs. The design package is really made up of the price, the, the, the cover, types of cover, levels of cover, and then the terms and conditions. And the first, the first part of my, my uh, contribution today is really about um, price, and in particular the instability in the price, the, the underpricing we've seen, followed by, you know, for a lot of funds, uh, overpricing. And I've quote here that I think is quite relevant to that. The recent industry group risk crisis shows how underpricing can create dislocation with dramatic impacts on affordability and continuity of cover. <coughs> Overpricing is equally, if not more, disruptive and inequitable. My bold, my bold. So, equally, if not more, disruptive and inequitable. And I, and I think that's worth exploring. So that's Lee Watson's musings. And, and he's the head of life at uh, Swiss Re. And, and clearly, I agree with his sentiment. So in the underpricing um, part of the, of the curve, if you like, is, is the profitability graph. Uh, the years up to 2012, plenty of profit. Then we had the 2013, 2014 period. These are financial years. Of course, profit is a lag indicator of pricing. So the underpricing occurred when there was high profit. The overpricing occurs when there's a lack of profit. The underpricing was not uniform. Not all funds were underpriced. Some funds even got, in this period, price reductions. But some common characteristics that, that I saw 
in, in the underpricing were that TPD pretty well was the only default benefit for, for disability. That those funds had gone through an exceptionally competitive tender process and that they had a fixed premium design. So it wasn't needs based, it was more affordability. What can I get for my dollar? Dollar fifty and two dollars. <coughs> but those underpricing extremes seem to have come and gone, and what rang the bell was probably the Care Super tender recently, where Care Super managed to get out of that whole scenario by having a good tender at the start of it, having a good tender at the end, and never saw any price increase or decrease really. Now, now we have a scenario where, where quite a few funds are overpriced. And they happen to be the same funds, really, that were underpriced. Their common characteristics are they have TPD or, or they did at the time have it as their default disability benefit or their predominant default disability benefit. They had a very uncompetitive tender situation <laughs> as opposed to a very competitive one and still have a fixed um, prim design. So, so these overpricing uh, extremes have not gone for those funds. They're still being... Um, if you like the word hammered. Okay. Of course, overpricing is worth exploring because, as uh, Lee points out, it's disruptive and it's inequitable. And it can occur, obviously, through premium rates or through terms and conditions. And some of the terms and conditions we're now offering the funds aren't all that clever. And I've listed some there. Uh, the very last one there is, I think, very important. Indiscriminate discrimination, and I've picked up two there, on casuals or new members, where, where there's no robust research to support it, as there typically isn't, just because out of a textbook we decide that casuals look like a high risk. Uh, that, that doesn't do our industry any good at all. And, and that's just waiting for Adele to come and get us. Uh, let's explore the overpricing a bit more. Disruptive and inequitable. So disruptive to me is a supply side problem. When you overprice, it's an open invitation to your competitors to come in and get your business. It's an open invitation for other people to set, set up other structures that may be more appropriate than the structure they currently are presented with. Inequitable, I think, is on the demand side, and that's the consumer side. The consumer will buy less of your stuff. That's the first reaction they have when you overprice. They buy less of your stuff and I'll show you some examples of that. They go to other existing suppliers and they look for alternatives. And the problem for the life industry is they may never come back. The other problem for the life industry, as Richard pointed out, is the community starts to question even the whole concept of group, group, group risk insurance and is it, is it any value so I, I think deliberate overpricing reduces the long-term value of, of a life office. There's no doubt about that. Short-term profits, long-term, you've just let other people in. However, there is a, pro, a, a, a very good outcome out of um, this cycle of underpricing and overpricing, and there's been a lot of innovation coming out of it. So this is, this is one of the areas where we... As, as actuaries probably um, didn't, didn't do such a good job. We, we tried to price off trends. Trends that may or may not have existed, but let's have a look at profitability here. If we're trying to predict the profitability for life officers in, for group risk, 2017, 2018, 
How many of us would do that? Join two dots together? No, we don't like that trend. Let's do that trend. And therein lies the answer. Yeah, and that, probably none of us would do that. But that's the sort of work we gave insurers. This is an example that was published in Actuary Australia of how we decided we um, saw the picture of loss ratios for a particular fund. We're just going to join some dots together, pick a really high scenario, pick a slightly lower scenario and say that's the only place it can go. That's what was presented to trustees. There are a lot of issues with that methodology, obviously, but one of the problems is the reliance on, on the loss ratios. Those loss ratios weren't actually um, fully developed. So the, the three big blue ones actually weren't as high as that. And the four prior to that weren't as low as that. And as soon as that outcome is, is looked at, there is no trend. So the green, the green bars show what actually occurred. And, and if you started about, if you start from the left and you started about uh, the fifth quarter in this case, what you find is on the green on the green lines it's actually fairly flat and just bouncing around. And it, it took forever for the fund to argue that case and eventually it got through, but that's how that fund's actually travelled. Now that fund was priced up in the, between the two yellow bars. And the reaction of the trustee was, as we said, let's have less of that stuff. So they cut their, their default benefit. So all the people up to age 25 no longer had IP cover. Just took it away. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people joining this fund every year. So IP premiums up. There's an inefficient market, so the trustee had, had nowhere really to test, test that, um, that position. But we're not the only industry that does that. Does that. This is the electricity market trying to guess the demand for electricity and just continuously getting it wrong because they think, firstly, there was a trend and it's up and it must still be going and it must still be going and it's always there. No, no actual real work on what's driving the trend. So we're not alone. So the trend became a bit that the trustees didn't treat us with a lot of respect at that point. They called it the rocket launcher. And um, they still do. I was still going to some, some funds and they'll talk to me about the rocket launcher. And I think, I think that, that whole concept and that lack of rigour damaged our, our credibility amongst our clients. Here's another fund. TPD premiums went up. Couldn't go anywhere. They just halved the cover for everybody. And just for good measure, the TPD definition, the top part of it's only an activities definition, not even the full definition. So really it's only 40% cover. So we're selling widgets. People don't want them anymore. Here's another one. TPD premiums up. And they just cut the, the default benefit in this case. So these are the consequences of overpricing. And, and the bigger consequence of overpricing is QSuper. And, and Richard's already pointed out that their preferred position was to insure. That was their preferred position. And what, what, 
the insurers who, who, who quoted on that effectively did was give them the financial reason to go and self-insure. Okay, through a structure that might be inefficient. They had to set up a whole captive, new board, new appointed actuary, CEO, the whole kit and caboodle. But now they've, they've done, gone and done that. And what we've done there, the, the industry has lost the opportunity cost. There's, not, well, there's an opportunity cost of not having insured. They've created a competitor. And not only that, QSuper can sell uh, individual products to people effectively. So they've created a competitor on the retail side as well as on the group side. And the other thing that's happened out there is, of course, QSuper is now the template for all the other big industry funds. And that might not be a bad thing. Because some, some of them are very, very large financial institutions that could support, obviously, a captive insurer and, and give it a return on capital that's required. On a, on a more positive note, perhaps, sustainable designs. So I want to spend a little bit of time on SunSuper and PSS because they're very interesting designs. Maybe just a couple of points out of the REST design, which has been around for a lot longer. All three of these funds have a really clear focus on, on their membership. So they, they spend a lot of time working out what their membership base looks like and what their financial needs are if they're disabled, separately from if they die. Because if you die, obviously you're no longer around, but your dependents are. So let's start with SunSuper. SunSuper has added a lot of value to the thought processes of our, our industry. The first thing they did was go and actually survey ask very detailed questions of their TPD claimants from the past five years. And they got a very good response rate, surprisingly. I, I tried this back in the 90s. I tried it again in the 2000s, but trustees weren't prepared in those days to go and ask their TPD claimants anything. But it's, it's very worthwhile. If funds did that across the board, it would be a, a big, big improvement. So they got a 35% response rate. They worked with their insurer to get a random sample that represented a cross-section of, of the claimants. And there's some really interesting stuff came out, came out of it. It could be a whole inside session. That's <coughs> just their survey. 11, uh, only 11% of people that had an improvement in their condition. So 90% were the same or, or deteriorated. 15% of the people had gone and got a job that was not their, their, a job they could do based on their education training experience. So 15% of people had gone and retrained themselves or rehabilitated themselves into an occupation where previously they failed the definition. Now they've gone out and done something about it. 5% was still had had some work in, in a job that did meet the old definition. So what that says to us is there's only a 5% slippage really, which isn't a bad result. Only 11% had an improvement. The other really important thing that came out of this survey was basically 100% of the benefit was gone within five years. So in, in some ways we'd say that that proves the underinsurance <coughs> concept. Two-thirds of the benefit was spent on living expenses. Remember, SunSuper has no IP, uh, as at fault. Two-thirds was spent on living expenses and one-third, basically, on rehab and medical expenses. And pretty well none was saved. 
and very few people it would appear had just spent it on a trip overseas. Which you know the, the anecdotal evidences are they're all doing all these wrong things. That's that's not the case on this on this survey. So as Richard said, that this informed some survey on a design that was appropriate to them. So their, their design has nothing, nothing to do with my thoughts. I helped them overview it, but they, they Sun Super and their, and their actuaries and their, their people internally have come up with this design. Six equal instalments over five years. Each, each instalment requires a full TPD assessment. No waiting period. And they have, and, and if you think about TPD, very, very long reporting delays. So how are you going to do return to work there? Well, they've engaged the employers. They've engaged the big employers and they will get um, the employers reporting to them on people who've had more than 30 days sick leave. Right. So that's, that's different to the way we've done things in the past. The other thing they did was introduce a sunset clause, five-year sunset clause. So that means if you don't report your claim within five years, you get nothing, zero. So it's, it's a harsh balancing act like all these things for trustees. You've got default cover. A lot of people don't even know they've got the cover, but the trustee felt that five years was fair enough. You get, you get your claim there. And they've got strategies around to inform people and reinform them and reinform them. The, the beauty for some super was they could keep the old scale. So there's no, no change in the scale. The scale's that, that red line that goes um, up and then back down with age. Maximum of 250000 If you like that, you get 50% more. When you, when you join, you can get another 50% more, but you've got to pay for it. And I just threw in the premium rates for TPD. The blue lines were the 2011 premium rates. The green lines were the 2014 premium rates. And the uh, red line is the um, 2016 premium rate. So they had the massive increase, and then the, the, it came back. It came back partly because of the design, but it came back also because they'd had very good experience re relative to the uh, 2014 rates. Um, I'll just pick out some of the advantages here. I mean, all this is going to be up on the website, so you, you can read this in your own time. But it's, it's actually, they got a ruling that says that those TPD payments are tax-free, so that, that's a big advantage. They're, all, they're also going to be a lot more attractive from a uh, settling point of view, I expect, because you'll have less, less assets. So you, you're more likely to get through the assets test. Um, and, and I presume if... If the tax office is treating it as a lump sum, the Centrelink will treat these each as lump sums. Um, the sunset provision helps actuaries as much as anyone else because after five years, we know what the result is. So in five years' time, we'll be able to get up here and we'll be able to start talking about how it's looking. But in fact, we won't really know for 10 years, perhaps, what difference it made. There are some issues to watch as there is with, with any innovation... There is perhaps some underinsurance. There is perhaps some overinsurance. If you're a workers' comp claim, you get 250,000 plus your workers' comp claim. You probably want to get all your six instalments. You won't want to sit there. Uh, perhaps go back to work unless the rehab really, really kicks in well. Um, then there's the cost of six, six assessments. That's an issue because of the sum insurance is quite low at some ages. <coughs> there's the economies of disputes. Again, is it cheaper just to pay? and get on with it, or are you going to actually run the dispute? Um, and there, there could be, and Claire's going to talk about sunset. 
in her speech, so I won't, I won't actually talk about that. Okay, PSSAP is the um, Public Sector Super Scheme. Uh, has about 100,000 insured lives and growing. It has about $100 million of premium. And it decided to integrate the TPD and IP benefit into a, into a disability benefit, if you like. Uh, so it, it moved its IP benefit from two years to five years. And it decided that because you're getting IP, we, we are going to try and manage that claim through the, through the return to work, etc. But we're not going to assess TPD until the two-year point because we'll know a lot more about you after two years than we know on, on day one. So there's their death cover, their TPD cover, they drop right down. It used to be the same. So maximum of 150,000, I think that is, in, in the Middle Ages, drops off. But the, the really interesting part's the IP, I think, because there's a two-year mark. Not, not only do they um, assess you for TPD at two years, they change the definition of uh, disability in the IP to, to a, an ETE definition, and they drop the amount of cover from 75% of salary down to, to 50%. Throughout this, though, they keep paying 100% of the preserved superannuation contribution. So the person's retirement savings are still looked after, even though they become disabled. And for the uh, public sector, that's 15.4% of salary. So replacement ratio on super, 100%. Replacement ratio on salary, 75, dropping down to, to 50. So, I'll just pull out one of the advantages of PSS. It's simple. There's no choice. You either get that, that cover scale and that, that IP or you get underwritten. Right? You want something else, then you, then you get underwritten. So no choice. Uh, they, they made everything you have to do 60 days. So if you think about all those daily, daily things that add up, 120 days for this, 90 days for that, 30 days, everything's 60. 60 day waiting period, 60 days to, to um, get the first contribution in. Um, now, they did impose a limited cover. Oh, they, they have a uh, CIS based TPD definition, so they're very protective of it because that's still unlikely. And it's, it's quite a powerful definition if you, if you like. But they don't want to just give that out, so they imposed a 12 month limited cover period. And that's probably one of, one of their. I would say it's going to be one of the biggest issues because if you're a new member, really you shouldn't turn off your cover in the previous fund until your 12 months is up in the new fund, otherwise you lose cover for your pre-existing conditions. So there is, there is a bit of an issue in that. But, but again, I mean, you, you, when you're going to be innovative, you're going to do different, different things and you just have to see how some of these things work out. Um, finally, I'll just look at REST. REST, rest went... Um, this is their death, death benefit in blue, their TPD benefit in red. They said the TPD benefit's there for the medical and rehab side of things, just low level, flat, has a purpose, and they went to 2H60 IP. Based on the salary profile of their membership, which as you can see from those numbers is very, very low. People in retail are casual. They don't, they don't earn a lot anyway as an hourly rate. And so here's an, there's an appropriate scale developed for them. There's very little in the way of AAL benefit. You, you can dial up. We, we set this on the median, median salary by age. 
we allow them to dial up to the next quartile. So it's an increase of 40%. Um, REST also provides a superannuation benefit. Um, it's, the IP benefit is indexed to a WADI rather than CPI, so that they keep up with community standards and the definition changes at two years. There's lots of advantages. Read about them later. But the issues are more important than the advantages, perhaps. Long-term IP are always an issue. It's been going for seven years, but still, it's, it's immature. And IP claims management, exceptionally important when you've got long-term business. And they're, they're, they're focuses of that fund. Just to finish, this is the TPD loss ratio for rest in a sustainable design since 2009. A very different picture to the industry. One of the funds that wasn't underpriced. So the question is, and I don't know the answer, is that because of the design or is that some other reason? The removal of large lump sums may have made a difference. The, the emphasis on income over, over lump sums may have made a difference. Thank you. about what's happening in the industry and what's happening to um, definition design. And it's typical as a lawyer, I've got a lot of words on my slide and not many pictures, so I do apologise. But what I'd like to do is, is touch uh, on those items um, and I'm happy to, to deal to some questions later on as well. I think it's very important as a starting point that when we're talking about group insurance um, for members of a superannuation fund, we need to frame the discussion in the context of what a trustee's obligations are to those members. And I think that came through very strongly um, in, in Jeff's uh, presentation. And those obligations, uh, without wanting to quote the law to you, but there's an overriding obligation that a trustee has to exercise their duties um, in the best interests of members and to use an appropriate degree of skill and diligence and to act fairly between classes of members and within a class of members. So that's the overriding focus that a trustee has in relation to the management of the assets of the fund and the treatment of the members. And in addition, in 2013, when there was the stronger super reforms that came through, there was a renewed focus on insurance covenants and this idea of having to have an insurance um, strategy for the benefit of members. So this really focused trustees' attention at a time when obviously there was a lot of core experience being had within the group insurance segment and your increase in, in premiums and, and costs of, of being able to provide those benefits to members. And, and relevantly, the, the trustee had to consider the cost of insurance um, of a particular kind and of a particular level to members and bearing in mind that any such insurance must not inappropriately erode the retirement benefits of members. So that's the key focus, what the purpose of the superannuation system is about. 
And the, the other requirement, which uh, many, many lawyers would say was a matter uh, of general law obligation anyway, given the trustees' broad um, duties to members of a fund, but it was called out specifically in 2013, and that was the obligation to do everything reasonable to pursue a claim uh, for the benefit of a member if that claim has a reasonable prospect of success. So I won't go on too much about the CISEC, but I just wanted to set the framework, and that is really the the um, context in which a lot of these uh, benefit designs have, um, have been drawn from. And I think the challenge is being able to articulate that obligation, particularly in an environment where we have the headlines and the, and the social media and the context around where, whether or not um, insurance and superannuation is providing um, a benefit to members. The, con the concern is that insurance and superannuation has to deal to the masses. It has to provide at least some form of benefit to, to all members. I think what we can say is that after many years of really significantly little change in the concept of what um, TPD meant in uh, superannuation, uh, we've now been hit with what one commentator would describe as a bit of a tidal wave of changes, and I think those have been very well set out by Jeff. Um, and if you recall, the standard um, of permanent incapacity, the standard test under the CIS Act, is one which presents a lot of challenges for trustees as well as insurers and uses concepts around um, the need for an opinion to be formed of being reasonably satisfied. Um, and there was, uh, prior to Shutram's case, at least in the last couple of months, the view that the concept of unlikely to be ever able to work again was a relatively low threshold to meet. And all of these things um, have led to uncertainty around pricing and uncertainty around the scope of cover for any particular individual. So all of these factors have driven change. And I think back in 2014 probably was the first um, time that Australian was uh, Australian Super, I think, really took the lead in, in being the first to dip their toe into the water to come up with a design that was considered to be quite different to what the market had seen beforehand. And what I wanted to do today was really focus probably on three aspects that give rise to some legal questions, and that is this move from the ETE test, or query, is it a real move, but to start to incorporate the concept of rehabilitation and retraining. And I think that when you look at the Australian super um, product and you look at what's happened with the Sun super product, they've approached these questions in quite different ways. The other uh, feature too is the, um, the, uh, the TBD payments by instalment versus lump sum and the implications for the test of permanent incapacity. Um, I think care, and I'd just like to call out that great care needs to be taken in the way you design that, that um, structure to ensure that the trustee is able to um, satisfy its uh, obligations under the CIS Act and the conditions of release. And I'll talk a little bit about unable ever and unli unlikely ever as well. But I think it's important to bear in mind that when you look at these aspects of TP definition, um, in a TP definition, you always have to look at the whole of the TPD definition in, in each case, and it needs to be read as a whole. And I would never suggest that any, and I'm sure no one here would suggest that any single change that has been explored by some of the, the funds in recent times 
uh, can simply be bolted onto an existing definition and be expected to work. So turning to this concept of rehabilitation and, and retraining, I think um, traditionally the, the test was uh, whether a member was reasonably qualified by education, training or experience, whether or not they would be able to gain uh, gainful employment. And when the... There's been a couple of extremes in, in case law, but we at least got to the point in Dargan's case a couple of years ago that when you had to regard to whether someone was reasonably qualified by education, training or experience, you could certainly have regard to the fact of whether or not... Um, uh, a, what was seen in Darwin's case was a relatively small step in being able to be qualified as a taxi um, driver. A four-day training course that was undertaken would not preclude a person from being found to be reasonably fitted for a job. So I think that was quite a significant step forward in being able to encompass and start to look at potential retraining that could be taken into account in determining your ETE test. But nonetheless, it very much depends on the particular case that a trustee or insurer is having a look at, and that it, it uh, brings about um, a degree of uncertainty in application. So when Australian Super um, reintroduced uh, changes back in 2014, they uh, introduced the concept of, firstly, using the idea of uh, incapable of ever working again, but they brought in the idea that um, in determining whether or not someone was TPD, they could have regard to not only their previous education, training or experience, but any job that they may reasonably become suited to with further education, training or experience. So this introduced, I think quite uniquely, a test of looking prospectively at what someone might be able, be able to do. Um, and the definition took... In, uh, said that the trustee could take in, or the insurer could take into account such things as reskilling, training or voluntary work that has already been done, uh, any retraining or reskilling that you could reasonably be expected to do. So it brought in this alternative of looking at something that uh, might be relevant uh, prospectively. It didn't introduce, which I think is different to the Sun Super scenario, uh, any obligation to participate in rehabilitation as a condition of assessment, but it was a factor that an in the insurer could have regard to. The concept of reasonably could be expected introduces um, uh, another test of whether something is um, real or a substantial possibility, and it's not fanciful or theoretical that retraining or rehabilitation could have a positive effect. So it certainly went further than where the case law had got to in Dargan, um, and it, it introduced this uh, principle of prospectivity and it introduced some framework in, as to the types of considerations that the insurer could take into account. So I think it was, it's a very clever design and I think it steered quite carefully away from perhaps engaging with some of the legal issues and questions that arise when you start to introduce things such as sunset clauses or you start to introduce um, positive obligations or requirements that a, a member needs to undertake as part of the um, entitlement to participate or be assessed in a, in, a, in a claim. Importantly, I think Australian Super also introduced the concept of um, the requirement that a person is under attendant medical care. And this was a, a requirement that wasn't typically seen in TPD um, clauses. It was a key feature, obviously, in the IP disability cover, but not something typically seen in TPD. 
So, just stepping through sort of the next iteration, I suppose, or evolution in the, in the process of the definition, we come to Sun Super. And this introduces quite a different variation to the theme of retraining and, and rehabilitation uh, and within this concept of a stepped assessment process. And I think it's a very clever design from a legal perspective because the first um, date of assessment, uh, one the insurer has to have regard to whether or not someone is incapacitated um, uh, by reason of their um, education, training or experience. At that stage it doesn't introduce um, a positive or explicit requirement to have regard to the potential for retraining or rehabilitation. But it, it uh, does allow the insurer to take into account um, education or things that might have happened to the claimant up to the date of lodgement. So if there's a, 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 a time difference between date of, assess, uh, date of disability and date of lodgement and there have been changes that have happened for that claimant, those, uh, those can certainly be taken into account. It also uses the concept of unable ever and uh, rather than unlikely ever. And there is a difference between those two terms and I'll, I'll touch on those in a minute. But what um, I think does present some legal questions uh, from, from where we've travelled in the Sun Super case is the idea of the ability for the insurer to require a person to participate in an occupational rehabilitation program as part of the process of the assessment that might occur um, after the initial assessment. So the, the second assessment date and subsequent um, dates um, that follow over the five or six year period. And I think this has probably goes further than what we've seen in other um, designs to date. And certainly on subsequent assessment dates, the insurer has the ability to have regard to further education, training and experience the person has, um, has acquired. Let me just talk about unable ever and unlikely ever. There's two points here around the terms, those two terms. Um, unlikely ever to engage in work for award or any occupation, uh, in any occupation or work for which reasonably qualified by education, training or experience, um, brings with it uh, a test of relative weight of possibility. And I think up until Shutram's case earlier this year, there was um, a concern that the word unlikely really um, established a, a low threshold um, for being able to meet the test of TPD. There were cases that were quoted regularly in suggesting that if there was um, uh, even um, a 50% chance of someone being um, unable to return to work, that would be enough to find them TPD. But Shutram and I think more recently the Wheeler case have confirmed that in applying this test of unlikely ever, the question is whether there's a real possibility of a person returning to work rather than something that's remote or speculative. So even if it's less than 50%, that still um, uh, will preclude a person um, from being um, determined um, TPD. So I think that's an important step in terms of giving some certainty around the concept of unlikely. The other um, key difference, and I think this is where the, the difference between unlikely and unable is significant, is that when you look at the concept of whether someone is unlikely to be able to work, you have in regard to not only their, um, their um, medical 
in capacity, but you're also having a look at the context and whether or not within their environment it's reasonably likely that they would be able to return to work by reference to what might be available in their community. If someone lives remotely, that might increase the chances that they would be unlikely to find, um, find work for which they're reasonably fitted. Um, similarly, if someone's of a particular age and circumstance, again, that would factor into whether or not they would be unlikely to be able uh, to return to work. Using the words unable ever to work, I think focuses particularly on the individual's capacity to be able to work. So it becomes a much more finite test in my view. And it, it's looking specifically at their medical uh, capacity and, and their training and their circumstances rather than necessarily having regard to the whole environment in which they might be placed. Whether that's a fair outcome, I think, is probably a debate that's still to be had. Um, uh, and I think there is, there's value still in the concept of unlikely ever, but given the, the strength of the, the test that's been confirmed in Shutram's case. But, but I expect that that debate will, con that will unfold. Um, but certainly, unable ever or... Uh, un um, unable ever or incapable of ever being able to work again certainly sets a very high threshold um, and possibly draws uh, unnecessary attention or even negative attention to the test that um, uh, an individual must, must meet. Let's talk about sunset clauses and, and Jeff mentioned the sunset clause in the Sun Super. So in, under the terms of the um, trust deed I understand the, uh, a, a person who does not make their claim within five years of the date of disablement will be ineligible to be able to make that claim. Now, I think it's the legal question that everyone gets focused on on sunset clauses is the great difficulty that an insurer would have on trying to impose such a, a restriction under the terms of the insurance policy they issue to the trustee because of the operation of Section 54 of the Insurance Contracts Act. Um, and the insurer would be in a difficult, I think the insurer would be in a position where it would be difficult to enforce that requirement um, uh, in, in the circumstances of a, of a claim. Nonetheless, if it's something that's within the terms of the deed, I think that's a separate question. The trustee is not subject to the terms of the Insurance Contracts Act, but obviously the trustee is subject to the, the broader terms and obligations under the CIS Act um, and, and the insurance covenants. So I think the challenge in any of these designs is that where you introduce a positive obligation on an insured, uh, and three examples I call out is one is to to, to submit your claim within a particular period of time, if that's something that's introduced into the policy. The obligation to be under regular attendant medical care, um, which again is a positive obligation that's imposed, which in my view is quite a reasonable obligation, um, but it's a positive obligation that's imposed on the insured. And thirdly, where someone might be required to participate in an occupational rehabilitation program as part of the ability to be able to satisfy the definition for TPD. Section 54 of the Insurance Contracts Act in, provides um, restrictions on the extent to which insurers can uh, enforce their rights under a policy. And it's a, can I just say that at the outset, Section 54 is a fairly uh, complicated and obtuse provision. There's been many, many case, cases 
um, on this issue. Not a lot in the life insurance space, but certainly in the general insurance world around what the scope of this section means. But it, in a summary, it, it, it provides that where the effect of a contract of insurance uh, would be um, that the insurer may refuse to pay a claim, either in whole or in part, because of, of some act of the insured, and an act in this context means an act or a failure to act. So where the insurer might refuse to pay a claim because of something the insured fails to do, uh, that, that occurs after the contract has been entered into, then the insurer may not refuse to pay the claim uh, by reason only of that act, but their liability can be reduced by the amount that fairly represents the extent to which their interests have been prejudiced by reason of that act or that failure to act. Now, that's a lot of legal speak, but the challenge there is that if, if an insurer is pushed to the circumstance where they wish to deny a claim on the basis that someone has not um, been under regular medical attendant care or they have not participated in an occupational rehabilitation program without you know, a reasonable basis for, for doing so. Um, or, um, um, you know, they don't make their claim in time, it will then be incumbent on the insurer to demonstrate that that fact has prejudiced the rights um, uh, of, the, of the insurer. And that is a question that has traditionally been determined by what is the financial loss uh, to the insurer as a consequence of that act. And so that becomes a difficult causation loss question about whether or not uh, failure to participate in a rehab program really has had uh, an impact on the, um, the, the person's um, state of uh, total and permanent disability. <coughs> that becomes very much an evidentiary question. Nonetheless, I think the Sun Super um, uh, um, design has had regard to all of those issues and been very careful about the extent to which it would impose any requirement for a person to participate in an occupational rehabilitation program. It's clearly trying to, um, to deal to the range of circumstances in which you might find a member comes to the fund with such a claim. And there will clearly be circumstances where um, such a program would not be of assistance. But it does, it does heighten, I suppose, a legal risk around enforceability of those provisions. And it'll be very interesting to see how, um, how, the, um, how the fund uh, goes and deals with that. I think finally I would just like to say that um, in an environment in which we are facing increasing um, regulator, uh, regulatory scrutiny from APRA and ASIC around um, claims management, claims management philosophy, um, the, the social media debate that is, that is raging around the um, suitability um, of insurance uh, and meeting people's needs, the nature of these designs, and as Jeff had highlighted, imposes quite a significant uh, burden on uh, resourcing around claims management, uh, dealing and uh, responding in time uh, to assessments of TPD, particularly on, a, on an, an instalment or, or staggered basis. And this could potentially give rise to legal questions and challenges about whether or not the insurer is meeting their obligations of their duty of utmost good faith in that context. So there's a very clear emphasis on insurers having to manage claims consistent with that duty. And now that duty is one which has not been very well defined, but it brings with it <coughs> notions of fairness and reasonableness. And the sorts of um, issues where it comes to light is where there might have been undue delay in, in responding to a claim 
unreasonable requests for medical information and data. So I think these kind of designs will raise that legal risk and there will need to be quite clear processes around how um, insurers will um, manage the claims process in a way that minimises the risk of the breach of that duty. And I'll, I'll stop it on that note. Thank you. Um, I am hoping that we'll have some time now for some questions and I hope that we'll get some questions for presenters. I'd like to thank the presenters very much. Um, I just want to say productivity in super in insurance, very topical at the moment, with Jeff and I both giving a submission to the Productivity Commission uh, on behalf of the Actuaries Institute and providing input into that. I think Jeff's led by example, 30-odd slides in 20 minutes at a rate of about uh, one every 37 seconds, so I think probably Jeff could get in there and show him a trick or two. Um, but anyway, um, just in relation to the presenters, are there any questions out there that you want to ask to the panel? Peter. Um, yeah, first of all, uh, thanks for all the presentations. I found them very, very interesting and to the uh, Life Insurance Wealth Management Practice Committee and SCA for organising the event. Um, I was very interested in... Uh, Jeff's comment, in particular, uh, like the, the legal um, uh, issue in relation to privacy. Jeff mentioned that in the Sun Super there was a requirement for the employer, or a likelihood the employer would tell Sun Super when someone was off work for 30 days due to sickness. I was wondering how that fits in with the legal concepts and, and privacy, because I didn't think the employer would have anything to do with the legal relationship between me as a member of our industry fund uh, and, and how to get around that. I mean, I wouldn't like my employer telling my industry fund what I was up to. It's none of their business. Well, I think a curative um, response to that is always consent. So if you set those things up to, um, to, for, the, uh, for the individual to, to consent to that information being disclosed, that gets you a long way. Um, and I'm sure that's something that's was considered as part of that approach. Yeah, I, I don't know the details. Um, I, I do know, though, that other funds um, work with the employer, particularly through the uh, workers' compensation system, uh, where they are entitled to um, advise the workers' comp insurer. In, in that case, the employer is paying the workers' comp premium. Yep. So, yeah. So in that case, the employer is paying the workers' comp premium. There's a distinct relationship there. If I'm paying my premium to industry fund, what's the employer got to do with it? So I think the trustee would argue they're acting in your interest to get you back to work. But in the answer, the answer is better. I don't know. I don't know the details. I just pass that on because that's different to the way we've done it in the past. As an industry, we've sat back and it, generally rehab is it's just too late. Nearly a waste of time. We can cherry pick a few big sums insured and do something. Unless you get to people early, and I've seen some exceptionally good early interventions where on one employer there, there, there are no income protection claims because they get to these people soon and they do that at the employer level with the insurer's participation. And if we don't involve the employers somehow, then, then there won't be success in the claims management side. And to Sunsuper's credit, they're working with the employers Perhaps there is, and, and uh, there is some uh, communication to people that they will be working with the employer, and if you don't consent to that, will you tell us 
how we work. But I think in, in most cases, if I was a superannuation trustee, I'd feel as I was doing the right thing by the member. Because then that, that will become a, potentially become a claim and a rehab situation. Any more questions? Uh, thanks, Richard. Uh, I guess in response to Peter's question first, I don't believe there actually is a requirement for, for employers to report uh, to the fund, um, from my understanding. Uh, a question for, for Jeff. Um, has, has the existence of the traditional profit share played any role in the current overpricing we're seeing at the moment? Um, and also, is there a role going forward for new styles of profit sharing uh, between the fund and insurer, which might actually help some of the issues we're seeing around sort of the, the insurance cycle. Um, and then maybe if you just comment on premium guarantees as well and what's happening there. Thanks, thanks, Colin. Um, so, well, premium guarantees um, certainly came off from three years. A few funds kept their three-year guarantee, but not, not very many. So what, what we've seen is two-year guarantees and one-year guarantees basically, and a lot of extra work for actuaries. It's, it's enormous. It's enormous. And, and to some extent, the industry can't cope. And it can't, it can't address the need to have tenders going over here and re-rates going over here on these very, very large, large funds. So in some ways, it hasn't helped. Um, the short guarantees now are helping the funds because they'll get a price, because they're overpriced, they'll get a price reduction faster. So I think that perhaps is, is a positive for them. They saw it as a negative it might actually turn out to be a positive for them. Um, the profit share is an interesting one. And, and just like anything else in super, you need a philosophy around your profit share. So typically, um, if you just got profit share for profit share's sake, it, it, there's just no point to it. So you need a clear purpose. So yeah, just the same as why am I providing TPD? Why am I providing IP? Why have I got a profit share? So, so in the funds I advise, it's, it's a smoothing mechanism. You give the insurer a little bit more, not a lot more, but a little bit more because you know the insurer will feel more comfortable insuring you, firstly. You can do innovative stuff. You've got a little bit of room to be innovative and you spread, you spread the risk a bit over time. And <clears throat> as long as you're paying back the, the profit share to members in a reasonably quick period, I think, I think that's pretty equitable. You, you get a better overall picture for your membership. Um, funds that are exceptionally overpriced that the profit share will just be an embarrassment to the trustee. They'll suddenly have a whole stack of money. What do I do with this? It's, it's not a good position for a trustee to be in. It, it, it sort of solves part of the problem, but it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. At, at least in the end, the members will get, the membership as a whole will, will get something out of it. But in the meantime, a lot of people have paid, paid far too much. Any more questions? Uh, something really stuck out for me in that uh, 30 slides at a rate of 37 uh, seconds each, and that was the uh, what the average consumer would think. Um, I was quite shocked. I'm not in a life background, but I was quite shocked with the uh, reductions that some of the funds did when the, uh, to deal with overpricing and kind of cutting out complete benefits between uh, between tw uh, 20 and 25 or halving benefits uh, for their entire membership. Is the average customer able to make an informed decision or understand that their benefits just got halved um, from one fund to another or make the decision 
of which fund is appropriate for them? No. no they can't. <laughs> they can't. That's what they have it for. They have it for them. And that fund, half of it, only half it for the, the people. Anyone who got fixed cover, kept their fixed cover. So on the default, the default side funds now assume default, you really don't have too much interest in your insurance. So what's appropriate tomorrow is what's appropriate tomorrow. Might have been something different yesterday. The, the good thing for trustees is they now have to balance the, the, the amount of cover, the needs, with the affordability or the inappropriate erosion. So it's two parts of, of the Act that support their, their decision. Um, I remember at one fund where we were having some trouble on, on something insured years and years ago, we tried to cut the, the sub-insured, just cut it, and we weren't allowed to. But now, now a trustee could under the Act, they're supported by the Act, because it was an inappropriate erosion of the benefit. So people wouldn't know that, generally. There's no complaints, <laughs> typically. <laughs> it's just terrible, it's just terrible. The, the lack of interest in insurance in the general community, particularly default, is, is, is not very good. Um, question about the change in definitions will allow for rehab and retraining. I mean, at the moment, most funds, I think, normal decline rates on TPD on the old definitions were somewhere between 20 and 30%. And we all know TPD um, claims assessment, very subjective. You now introduce an extra subjective thing about, you know, we think you could be rehab or retrained into something. And that, to me, just adds another level of subjectivity on a claims assessor to make, well, what is a reasonable job? to go into. And I know when this, this question came up, I think a couple of years ago at the FSC, and I asked the question, well, would you try to get a blue-collar worker and say they could get retrained to a white-collar job? Or I'm an actuary. Yes, I could be trained to be, um, to be a taxi driver because I can drive a car. Right. Where do you draw the line? Is that to the good benefit members? Because I think what you're going to find out is your decline rate for TPD is just going to keep going up, which I don't think is a good outcome for the members. That's a very good question, um, and I think before the, even before the introduction of these um, changes in the definition, uh, given where uh, Darwin was heading, and there were a number of other cases over the last couple of years, there has to be a measure around what is, what is a what is a reasonable prospect of, of retraining, having regard to the to the individual, and I certainly don't think introducing the um, the uh, require the 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 ability to to consider TBD in light of retraining or rehabilitation is an open um, opportunity to um, decline a TBD claim without regard to what is reasonable for that for that individual. I still think that that test of reasonableness uh, has to apply. Although, as you note, that that it's a very subjective subjective thing, and it, it does raise the risk that you could have uh, increasing levels of declinature. Um, but um, concepts of reasonably could be expected um, do have, have some legal context. They've got to be real. They've got to be substantial. Uh, you, it can't be arbitrary that someone... I think there's a number of cases uh, where there seemed to be a trend that everyone could be retrained as a, um, as a, uh, a tow truck driver or a, uh, and, and, and those have been very quickly knocked back by, by the court. So it, it, it does still uh, 
retain that degree of uncertainty, I suppose, and uh, subjectivity, but it, it brings to fore the fact that um, you don't want another Harwood nominee scenario where someone has, has retrained and then, um, but that couldn't have been taken into account by the insurer in the, in the assessment of the, the TPD. So I think it's a reasonable step, but it's not without risk. And I know there's another definition floating about out there with about reasonable retraining, even if it's to a, a, an occupation with lower paying status. Um, in relation to Eddie's question, him retraining as a taxi driver, um, legal or illegal? You're definitely putting me on the spot here. <laughs> I think that's got to be tested. Um, I mean, like I say, I drive to my clients' offices to things, so part of my work is driving. Okay, I can't do this, sorry. This is why I get into this question about subjectivity and who is reasonable. Are claims assessors actually trained to do it? I mean, I went to a session where, I think it was, I can't remember, someone from Swiss Re or whatever is about talking about Australian super, um, where they had some case studies there and it was a, I think it was a blue collar worker who retrained themselves to be a project manager. And I said, okay, Obviously, a person had attempted to retrain a project manager, had no previous experience to train a project manager. So you're saying anyone with a blue-collar job, you know, effectively they could get retrained to a white-collar job, therefore we won't pay them a TPD claim. Personally, I'd say it's completely unreasonable. Someone else is saying it is reasonable. Mm. Right? We see these cases in the, in the court, you know, whether it's the common insurer or whatever other insurers out there, and someone made an assessment not to pay these claims. People are contesting those questions about the subjectivity of it. I just see putting these additional clauses is just going to get more and more of those issues coming out. And whether it's the members or out in the media, it's certainly not going to do any benefits to the industry. The, the other thing which I see as a risk in that is potential change of insurers. So I know a very big fund who claims to strengthen the definition to claim back control of the claims assessment process. So they're, not paying, they're paying more liberally than the definition. But then what happens if you then change insurer? Because I also know firms who say that once you change insurer, the previous insurer is more likely to be more strictly um, assessed claims. So I see that as a risk as well. Yeah, and I think that's why I put the PSS design up there, because it's, it's not going to assess TPD until two years of IP has been paid. And you, you get to know what's going on with the person and, and you get to try some rehab and then you can make a, a legitimate call, perhaps a lot more easy, easily. And just an example. Any more questions? Thanks everyone for coming along and don't forget Monday's session. <laughs> <laughs>